This is Shaka Wart Speak. I just feel like sometimes we should be goofy in the beginning. Well, I mean, especially we're going to have a pretty weighty topic, so. Yeah. So should I just be goofy? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, mean, yeah. Let's just try it. You do you, man. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, welcome to Shaka Wart Speak. I'm your host. Ryan Leterio. I was trying to channel like, you know, some kind of radio personality, but it's not, it didn't go as well as I'd, I'd hope. But uh, fortunately, uh, I'm here with uh, Dr. Blackwell. Hey, everybody. How's it going today? And he's holding it down and, and being the way that we should be, as opposed to my um, super serious radio voice. We're here with, but anyhow, I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> it's just a weird temptation that's come up when you're, you know, sitting in front of a microphone that's bigger than your head. And you can't see anybody, you sometimes default into your own weird headspace, um, which my headspace can be quite weird. And uh, hey, uh, own it, man. Just own it. Yeah. It's like, um, like I always say, it's like satellite debris that orbits the earth, but it's just pop culture debris orbiting my brain. And it, it just comes into focus at inappropriate times. I feel like my head would be super empty without the debris. I agree. I, I agree. Mean, it just wouldn't. But I would feel lighter. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like, I wonder if, if the satellite debris was missing from my brain, if it would be analogous to being high. It might be. Um, because, uh, I, I don't know, I think... Uh, <laughs> Which is our topic today. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a weird conversation to get into, uh, especially with what we are talking about today. <laughs> um, no, but I think... Get like, out your Fritos. <laughs> without, uh, without all that debris, I think... Uh, I don't know. It makes some really boring conversations. Yeah. Right? And be like yeah, just yeah, yeah. encyclopedic. Yeah. If know? there's no, yeah, if there's no humor. It's just me being Rain Man. But yeah. Rain Man was pretty funny actually, but it would just be me being like very one note, one tone. Oh yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 yeah and you'd have no, I mean like you talk about everybody. like cultural context, like cultural context only comes from a lot of that debris. Right. Totally. Otherwise it's just information. Yeah. It's the, uh, I was reading a guy and he says that we have a, subconscious and a conscious and then a pre-consciousness and i've been sort of geeking out on the pre-consciousness category which is just like this moten lava bed that's percolating yeah it's a different metaphor than satellite debris so it's like the satellite debris is there and then there's the moten lava Mm -hmm. pre-consciousness that's just bubbling up ideas no i like that yeah i like that yeah yeah i like Um, the interaction between the 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 stuff that's already out there and the stuff that is like stuck down in the muck and sometimes a bubble pops and gets some stuff on a satellite debris moment and that I got a thought, you know, or an idea. No, I think it's fantastic. I mean, especially you look at the the physiology of the brain mm-hmm. and the way that like all the synapses are kind of like mm-hmm. formed and being formed and like, it's this fantastic network of stuff. And I feel like that satellite debris is just popping more little dots yeah. into that network so yep. that they can be connected with other lines. Yeah. Um, so yeah, don't, uh, don't fight it, man. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a post-apocalyptic scenario in my brain yeah, with great. regards to past consumables. Mm-hmm. What is the world we want to make? Right. And what do we leave behind? I think it's great. Man. Yeah. Post, like, our brains are all post-apocalyptic. In an age when everything is in your brain. <laughs> Where do you go for ideas? Where do you go for ideas? <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, this, this like desolate landscape. Um, Michael Jackson dancing on top of a van. Man, I mean, honestly, though, like this is like a fantastic, like, it makes me feel good because you know those moments where you're like struggling for an idea yes. and you just can't put things together right. and you feel like you're like just abjectly failing. Yes. 
I mean, I'm just going to start placing myself into a post-apocalyptic, like some weird shed with like this weird crap all left yeah. in it. And I'm trying to like fashion some sort of like yeah. device to help me out. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Cause you're like trying to sew Ovaltine onto like a, you know, a transformer and Ov- <laughs> o- Ovaltine is not sewable, you know, but right. you're at your sewing machine trying to pull these things together. Yeah, man, our brains are just full of post-apocalyptic MacGyvers. Yeah, 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 yeah. post-apocalyptic MacGyvers. That's going to be the next show at Shockle Art Space, (laughs) That would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, be on the lookout. Check your email regularly for invitations to the post-apocalyptic MacGyver show. Yeah. Dude, that's really good. (laughs) It is. I'm just picturing everybody having, like, the requirement is you have to take a photo of yourself wearing a wig of his hair. I was just going to say mullets and leather jackets, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Acid washed jeans pulled a little too high, a little too tight. Gosh, that's a lot of dads, man, that didn't arrest development for dads in the 80s that still wear those kinds of jeans (laughs) a little too high. It's always amazing because I see people. The twigs and berries are. (laughs) I see people. I just watch them like. I'm like, wow, you have acid wash jeans on. Like, I, did you make those? Like, where did you find them? Did you actually go get a bat of acid? And <laughs> I know, right? It's like it explains the bandages on your hands. That's right. But it still doesn't and the fact explain that your the eyebrows jeans. are your eyebrows are missing. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's got acid <laughs> wash jeans on. His eyebrows are missing. Yeah, and those jeans look fresh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, next gosh. time on Chaco Art Speak. <laughs> yeah. Unrelated. We've got an acid wash jeans workshop coming up. If you'd like to be a part, uh, just write us at info at shockwardspace.com. Yeah. <laughs> Bring your own jeans. We'll That's supply right. the acid. Acid provided yeah. by us. Yeah. Well, there will be waivers yeah. that you need to sign. That's right. I'm pretty sure there's a heavy metal band named Acid. Probably. There are at least heavy metal bands on Acid. <laughs> it's a double entendre. It is. <laughs> It's like we are and we are. We are and we are. <laughs> and it worked out well for us. That's right. Uh, oldest looking 35 year olds I've ever seen in my life, but still <laughs> fantastic first two albums. You're aging really well. <laughs> Anyhow. All right. Well, sorry. We're in a, probably a goofier mood today. <laughs> yeah. It, if you didn't know, it's just the two of us today. So, um, so it, it might just be a little sillier. One of the, the things about this podcast is, <clears throat> we're serious minded, but, um, we're also goofballs and, um, you know, it, it's hard to contain that. And so, um, yeah, we'll just see how it goes. You got to have some fun sometimes. Yeah, Seriousness also, I mean, and like, fun can happen together. Oh, totally. They can happen together. And, uh, I think that we lose a lot. Uh, one of the things I teach my students as we talk about like modes of creativity and what it looks like. Um, and, uh, we start off with this idea of like play and fun mm-hmm. and we forget that that really is like foundational to why we even do the creative stuff we do. Yeah. You know, so somewhere back in the day we did it only because it was fun. And I think sometimes uh, detrimentally we get to a spot where we are doing it and we've forgotten like the fun aspect of it. Yeah. Our, e- our eagerness to get older. I think I was watching some of my kids had uh, friends over and they were, um, I mean, my guess is the ages range between four and nine years old. And, and, uh, I guess they were sitting around the table having a serious meeting about, about, um, a pest, a pet rescue club. Fantastic. And they're very serious about it. And, and so I, I got a picture of it, texted to me for my wife and Laura. And, uh, you know, I was like, it's good. I like that they're being serious, you know, like that's a real thing. Like there's a need to rescue pets and, um, and to try on, try on for size, what it looks like to sit together as people and talk about how do we solve this problem, yeah. you know? 
And so it was play, but it was serious. It wasn't, it wasn't really, um, man, that's know, a good, that's a good delineation. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, we're, we're very serious about seriousness. <laughs> How yeah. serious are we about fun and play? Right. Um, cause I mean, I think about that, like, um, you know, like fun and play, those are the things you do when you're in your downtime or you're mm-hmm. off. Right. That's right. It's the stuff that doesn't actually bleed into the stuff we're doing to build culture and, you know, I don't know. People talk about how much they like hate their jobs sometimes. I'm like, well, it's just not a, it's just not enjoyable. Don't have a good right. time. Right. And it's like, well, maybe, uh, maybe there's a, a real question about how do you, how do you seriously enjoy what you do? Yeah. You know, which, which isn't a totally weird segue into what we're talking about today. Totally. Um, cause really, uh, so we've been having a lot of conversations, listening to a lot of folks. We've heard some good feedback from people. Um, thank you and by then, the way. Also, uh, you know, toward the end of the semester, I think there's this kind of like uh, urgent poignancy that comes out or poignant urgency. Um, I call it purgency. Purgency. <laughs> I call it oignancy. Yeah. So um, it's a, uh, and we get it from students because, you know, a lot of them, they're graduating, they're going on to something else. They've got the summer ahead of them. They want to make sure it's really useful, like most of us feel. Um, but all the questions have kind of come around the same spot, which is like, what does it look like to actually do this? art design thing in real life because we have the fun kind of bubble microcosm of a university where sometimes the students are like oh my classes are my classes and everything else is real life but when rubber meets the road and they have to like actually put this stuff into work with life i think there becomes uh kind of a a, an existential crisis of sorts in Mm -hmm. some students where they're just kind of wondering how do i put these two things together right and I think that relates to, so also, I mean, we, we've gotten this question a lot, interestingly enough, from the gamut of experiences, from experienced artists and designers, from people that have long been past college, um, and also just people, um, I think, looking into what we're doing as a, as a nonprofit in terms of Shaco Art Space and, the, and, and therefore Shaco Art Speak and everything else that we're doing, the studios. And so the question has been coming up a lot in terms of uh, the increase, you know, like I have a studio practice, both Gareth and I have families, um, a lot of friends, a lot of care for the community. And so um, I think the danger is to look at someone, mystify them and kind of prop them up in a way that's, that's yeah. just not, not, you know, we're, you know, that, that would be the wrong way to go and um, wouldn't help the, per- it doesn't help the person you're propping up because they're not necessarily worth propping up. And, uh, you know, there's always, uh, or, you know, the man behind the curtain is, is a real person or whatever, you know, I think about the yeah. Wizard of Oz, like the big head floating there, but there's like some dude behind the curtain and there was a practical practicality to the way that effect was achieved. And sometimes that's just mysterious. You just don't know. Cause I think a lot of times we don't invite each other in, into each other's lives to where you can see the humanity of the person in such a way that, um, you see their shortcomings, their failures, where they're struggling, uh, where there might be some buckling and um, some fear and some some doubt, some trepidation, some hesitation in terms of trying to go forward. So there's a, you know, so when you look at it, we, we are just been listening, you know, I think over the last six months, and this has been a common refrain from folks across the board. And it's a discussion a lot of people are wanting to have. And so I think Gareth and I, we did some traveling and we talked about it during our traveling and, and, um, thought, you know, we might just throw ourselves out there and kind of initiate this conversation. So one of the things I think we're going to talk about is just kind of some of the difficulties with this because they're just there and, and we yeah, don't, totally. we don't have it all together on this. Like this is a, <laughs> yeah, this is a journey 
that we're on. And so because we think it's the kind of topic that's worth hitting at a few times, we're probably going to come back to it. So consider this talk a 1A and it yeah, may, may be a three-parter with some other people with some good insights some wisdom at different stages of their lives. And so we will sprinkle this topic throughout uh, the podcast season and probably moving into season two, uh, which will kick off in January. Yeah. And I mean, so, to be completely honest, like the topics we're going to kind of hit on today, I'm sure will come up for the entirety of the life of this podcast. Yeah. Because I think it's, it's things That's like you're, point. you're mentioning, like we, we still are wanting to answer this question well for ourselves. Yep. Um, but also it, it does feel like one of those kind of hush hush conversations sometimes. Mm. So when students bring it up, um, they are like, Hey, can I talk to you after class? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, well, what is it? And you're like, you know, prepping yourself for it to be like, uh, some, you know, they've got a big life issue that's kind of going to remove them from class for a little bit or something in that nature. And then they're like, yeah, I just feel kind of insecure about what it looks like to do this for a job. Mm -hmm. And and I'm like, you should have brought this up in class. It'd be fantastic to talk about with everybody because I guarantee that in a class of 18, the other 17 people have the exact same question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very rare. To, yeah, it's very rare to find someone who's who's really um, zeroed in and, and kind of navigating all of this well. I mean, yeah, because I mean, it's difficult enough to just do the studio practice, have the client list, be trying to get new clients or or sell your work or whatever else. It, it's difficult enough to do that whole thing of professional art practice and mm -hmm. design practice. But then to have to have this kind of like existential conversation yeah. and kind of like reflective stuff on top of that yeah. like it's yeah, a yeah. lot and you and you can only do that through a community of other people who are having that same conversation right and after school some yeah. of that gets lost but also well i think so also just to add to that you know when you're saying that i'm like also though like i've learned how to do some of this from people that are not in my community directly oh yeah because they're because i'm not afraid to listen for the commonality mm -hmm. in terms of juggling and prioritizing if you will in 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 um you know, we'll get into it, the difference between balancing it out, which is the way a lot of folks talk about it. I, I, we both, you and I are, are not at this point in our lives balancers. We don't, uh, you know, if you imagine juggling or balancing at some point, there's a lot of anxiety that gets bore out yeah, in a particular way on the person balancing or juggling. So we maybe have a different take on that. Um, but you know, so that means that there's a lot of folks that are actually doing it in their lives surrounding their own circumstances. And so I think that that's going to get at, uh, uh, part of the heart of the problem is is uh, it's the over in it's the overstressing of the individualism mm -hmm. and yeah. the the compartmentalizing and then the personal value sort of wagering I guess like uh, or establishing or or how on how you'd say it but it's the way we place a demand for value on the individualistic pursuits that we have and we want them to be singular but also transactable in, 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 so everything becomes pressured and you try to find a few things that you can do that satisfy human relationships, yeah. neighborhood building, community building, paying the bills, eating, pay, paying for Netflix, yeah, <laughs> you know, like paying your internet bill, uh, uh, eating, eating at my favorite place, Taco Bell, which is everybody else's favorite place. It should be, it was voted America's most healthiest fast food. So life just keeps getting better for me. Yeah, I need to find this the source for that vote. Yeah, I think it was value. I think it was valid. I I didn't even need to look. It, it could have been 
Yeah, it could have been the onion, but I think that's, you know, credible news. Well, I feel like it's one of those things like Taco Bell is so fantastic because like you can make it unhealthy. Yeah. Um, that should be their slogan. <laughs> you can make it unhealthy. Yeah. Um, but you don't have to. Because I think like it's one of those things where it's like, hey, I ate one taco. It's super yeah. healthy. Right. You know, and like look at all the vegetables. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but I also bought one of those like 12 pack boxes. It's meant for a party. And yep. I just ate it in the backseat of my car. And I drank the blue carbonated water stuff that they call like i don't know what but i don't drink that that's the one thing that does scare me if it looks like it can go in your car to clean your windows i won't drink it i was about to say like i i have some of that and i think it's in my transmission yep that's right so yeah fair enough but um <laughs> but yeah so like i mean but those are real things though like you know how you eat uh gets into things like lifestyle yeah you know and um i think that's i mean and and we have in our pockets four or 500 times the amount of information available to us oh, yeah. than any other time in human history. That's a massive amount of, um, uh, stuff to prioritize, you know? I mean, like that's intimidating, man. Like if you think about it and it's, and then it's like, but it's, it's a tempting pool to wade into whenever you want. And so you just pull out your phone and, and you're able to go in, you know? And I, you know, it's tempting for me, man. I can scroll you know, we once did a show here with Alex, Alex Curtis called The Infinite Scroll. Mm-hmm. I was like, there's so much truth to that, man. Like, where does the blog site end or where does the, you know, this is back in the day when we did the show. So we're thinking about, you know, blog oh, yeah. sites, but your Twitter fees or, you know, you're just like, where is it? It's like, it's like flat earthers looking for <laughs> the edge of the earth. They're like, I know it's there. No offense if you're a flat earther. Uh, you're, you're welcome to listen to. Yeah, um, keep looking. Keep looking. Let us know. <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah well i mean you know and i think like going back to what you were saying kind of about compartmentalization before we get into some of our own experiences um yeah we compartmentalize things and it's strange and i think we do it because we think if we designate a space for this and make it a discrete thing with boundaries then it's understandable it's definable and it's controllable mm-hmm. but i think what happens is it's just like having like a paper grocery bag mm-hmm when you have discrete pieces, only so many things can fit in that grocery bag. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, life catches up. Right. And there is a lot of stuff that's added, mm-hmm. whether by our choice or just by circumstances. Yeah. Um, and so compartmentalizing those things, I think, sometimes can be detrimental just because the weight of them becomes more because yes. they are separate. Yes. Um. And so I think before we get too much into like kind of what we think maybe a counterpoint to that is, I think it's good for us to get into um, experiences because I think that's where people can really connect Um, because we can talk about this in kind of a displaced way all day, like, you know, ideologically. Yep. Um, But in terms of like, so, so put yourself back into like your like MA, MFA work. Sure. Ryan. And uh, so you're, you're like kind of looking forward to what it looks like to emerge in the world as an artist. Correct. Um, what was your understanding of how all this stuff works or what your work would look like or how your practice would kind of be like, how did you understand either that, like that to use a common term, like a work life balance yeah, yeah or yeah. how you would do painting plus oh, whatever else was gosh. there. So I can, I, it's tempting to like want to have amnesia and give like yeah. better sounding answers, like to curate my past and make it sound a little better. No, just go so, full derelict, man. Yeah. So I guess, I'm going to err on this side of um, feeling more like an idiot and just trying to magnify some of where I think I probably was at. Go for it. Um, So 
One thing is, well, okay. So I was the kind of person who couldn't do one uh, more than one thing at a time uh, for, for whatever reason. So uh, that meant that my friendships became very exclusive just because I didn't know how to balance it. That means like my dating life, you know, whatever that is, like all of that had to become very, it was just a very small few that could enter that, that honest circle. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was a mess to be around because I was constantly like pushing people away um, mainly because I had, uh, because I couldn't even balance that. So then the studio became in some ways a justification for those issues. So like, you know, like, so in grad school, you know, my house is a mess. Um, I'm rooming with uh, a dear friend and his wife who had recently graduated. There are educators at the time and uh, they got a house so I can be in the back. So I'm not home. Um, not really taking care of my room. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's like a picture. So, um, but I'm reading a ton and I'm in my studio a ton, but um, I would be embarrassed and I was considered a hard worker and I would say that I was, but I also would be embarrassed if people knew how much time I wasted in the studio by myself, scratching my head, just nervously kind of trying to figure it out. Um, and so uh, I desperately clung to the most immediate voices in my space. So that meant that my, the people that I was doing um, studio visits with um, the people coming to my studio were pressurized. They were carrying a burden. They didn't even realize that I was putting on them in a way, you know, like I needed them to speak words of affirmation, speak words of clarity, you know, um, scratch the itch of my unsettled heart in the sense that no matter how successful I was, I always found I was, um, not fulfilled. So it was a conundrum and it was very small in scale. And so I had dreams of what a future could be, but they were really like, they were really just dreams. There was no bridge to those dreams. There was no uh, stepping forward to actualize those dreams. If that makes sense, like there was no steps to take. And so uh, the the three the three categories maybe is like I knew I didn't you know and, and again like this is where I was at. So I'm not quite I'm not there anymore. But where I was at was like I don't want to be exhibiting like in coffee shops and things like that. And I, and at this point, please hear me. I don't have like a, an issue with that. But at the time I did at the time I was like, no, no, no I, w- I want to be in museums or I want to be in the right kinds of collections. I want to, I want my work, you know, I was making like 12 foot, 15 foot paintings. Like I wanted my work to angle for particular institutions or audiences. Now the thing is those audiences were mostly generated through me reading books um, looking through art magazines and, and looking at galleries online back in, you know, the early 2000s. So the internet was not quite what it is now, you know, 2001, you know, I would lay in the library and just read Mac art America magazines. Yeah. Like I would just put dogpile books and read. And so, um, you know, so then I struggled to pay my rent. Um, you know, I struggle with real desire. I actually really uh, tend to have a heart for, for people. So I'd done a lot of community work before I went to grad school and I had a guilty conscience about what I wasn't doing. I felt selfish, but I also felt incapable. And so I just, you know, I remember Laura coming over one day, seeing my apartment and going like, like, you know, dishes piled super high and just being like, I don't even know how to tackle that. But I'm this artist and I'm, you know, I'm super important. Yeah, and I'm yeah. doing this really important thing, except for it has no impact on anybody. 
And the only audience that it, it seemed to have impact on was people I've never met before, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's where I was at. That's kind of this, the, and so I was working vicariously through, uh, my co- peers and my colleagues, um, plausible sort of propositions for me. Like you could go here and, and you just cling to those. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, it was, um, I don't mean that to sound bleak, but that if I could just try to like strip away the positive, the niceties and the positive things and just look at it in a little more of a brute way. Um, I think I was known to be a hard worker and kind of, you know, just by the numbers kind of prolific in my context. Like I made a lot of stuff in ways that had, hadn't quite been done before, yeah. but I also had the personal conscience to go like, I squandered a ton of time. I did not learn how to, how to be an adult. You know, I, my, my character was, was anemic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can, yeah. I can identify with a lot of that. Um, cause I, I, I think, you know, two years of master's work, uh, the first 18 months were probably like almost nothing but wasted time, mm-hmm. uh, in the respect you're talking about. Like there was a lot of work being done, but in terms of moving towards anything solid, it, I don't know that it was really there. So what I was doing is I was, uh, I don't know. Almost I feel like the beginning of master's work for me was trying to formulate what persona I wanted to attach myself to. Right. You know, so it was, you know, reading things in pursuit of kind of like trying to figure out who the best person I could be yeah, was that's there for sure. Instead of me saying like, what are the things I actually care about? Right. What are the things I actually enjoy? Like I wasn't asking these questions of myself. I was asking these questions of like cultural acceptance. Yeah, for sure. And so, uh, I have a, a buddy who recounts a story of, he was like, yeah, one day we were all hanging out. We were at your house. And uh, then you just were like, all right, guys, I got I to gotta write my thesis. And I just like got up and went into my room and shut the door. And he was like, yeah, we saw you like three months later. <laughs> and he's like, I, I, he's like, I remember it exactly that way. Right. And uh, that probably is the case. Yeah. Because I had, you know, because a part of that was like, um, I think that that, that kind of searching um, within spaces that were just weird and unknown. Cause I was trying to get some sort of acceptance or credibility mm-hmm. that that sort of weird searching. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things I wasn't doing that were actually a part of my work. Right. And I, you know, I would say that, that, that proportionately for me, you know, uh, I, I like my roommates would be frustrated with me. They wouldn't see me. And then I wasn't really like participating in the, yeah. the home, if you will. Um, and I was, that was weird. So I create a lot of friction and, um, but I kind of get it a little more now. Like I kind of, I can see it's like, yeah, you're, um, you're doing this thing, but you're neglecting proportionally a ton more. And, um, you know, I think, I think that the search for, well, what I like what you're saying is that you were trying on identities in a way. Yeah. 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 So that you're looking for your identity and you're trying things on. But the weird thing is while you're trying things on, you're neglecting all the stuff that you are. So while I'm trying yeah. on this, you know, I, I, I always just say this is so sappy, but you know, like as a teenager, um, you lay in bed at night and you dream about who you could become. Mm-hmm. And some of that's born out of how dissatisfied you are with yourself and whatever, you know, teenage years, man, they, they could be terrible. Like I, yeah, I went seriously. through some stuff, you know, like a, a bullying and weird stuff. And so like you're, um, 
you feel awkward in your own skin. You don't, you don't quite, you have a dual sense that you should be accepted for who you are, but also the, the sober reality that that's not happening and it probably isn't going to happen. So then you start crafting in your mind who you need to be to obtain to this kind of totalizing approval that frees you from the, the existential angst you feel or something like that. And so in, in a kid's mind, it's a little different, but you kind of, you don't, you don't, you, you kind of grow out of that, which means there's a continuity. It's not that you grow out of it, divorced from it. It's that it, it just takes new shape. So you get, you know, you get yeah. into grad school, you get some education, you know, you start to get respect from your peers. All of a sudden you're like, am I, am I th- uh, this kind of academic? Am I, am I, am I a serious artist? And so then you start to bifurcate. And so it's like, I'm this serious artist and I make jokes about this, but I'm like sitting in my studio, just wolfing down fast food, listening to pop music and things that academia is not excited about. Yeah. And now there's this tension of like, whoa, there's a, there's a door that I'm close to and I'm being invited in, but I have to leave these other things behind. And, and I don't know how to, all of a sudden it's a balancing act. Do I disclose this stuff? Do I, do I do away with it? Does this, you know, is my, does my sophomore at the time, especially sense, sense of humor disinvalidate the weightiness of the work I'm doing? Does my past, does the fact that my parents didn't go to college, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, no, like, no, definitely. Um, and, uh, if, if people find this out, do I have to create craft, a, an aestheticize a kind of story that shows that I've transcended these things? Do I have to look transcendent? You know, do I need to look uh, ahead of the curve in the cultural context so that people can't touch me? They can't, they can't criticize me. Um, uh, who do you, who do you emulate that looks like that? Yeah. And where are they? Um, yeah, it's a weird, it's, so it's like, this is all, by the way, you know, a lot of this just becomes headspace stuff. So you're like, you know, you're sitting in a room exhausted, <laughs> you know, having like, while the dishes are piling and the house needs to be vacuumed and you're like, you know, or if you have roommates, they're like, dude, can you clean the kitchen? And you're <laughs> yeah. like, I'll oh, busy. And you're like, you've been sitting there for three hours and you're like, I've been busy yeah. in my mind for three hours. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Sorting out my antique collection of past experiences. Yeah, for real. Yeah, curating my mind palace. Yeah, my mind palace. Yeah, yeah. Which mine's more like a hoarder. Like, I really think there's experience hoarders where they're like, it's all about experiences. And then, like, I envision, like, if we could go into, like, people's mind hoarder spaces like they do in those TV shows. Mm -hmm. And then you just see people going, well, that was from, like, 18, 1982 and we went on this boating trip. And you're like, what's that mean? They're like, "I, I don't know. You know, but, but that's there and they just keep going through them, you know, fetishizing their, their past experiences. And you're like, doesn't amount to anything. Just weighs you down. Yeah. My, my fear was more like that show storage wars. And Uh so people are like, they're like bidding outside the door Yeah, and then they open it up and it's like, there's a lamp and a cardboard box and a stained sofa (laughs) or like a stained mattress, you know, with like a bicycle wheel on it. (laughs) And and I'm just like, I'm sorry. This is is all it's there. There's no value. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was, I think that was always my fear, right? Is like, um, because we, you know, we, we talk a lot in art and design about uh, like imposter syndrome, right? Um, and that we always feel like we're going to get found out. And I think some of this is because exactly what you're talking about, um, that we've been so busy crafting a lot of who we are, like based on other kind of weird things Assumptions, and yes. compartmentalization of different yep. ideas, um, that in some way, like it's a real fear because we're like, yeah, there is a big part of me that feels like I'm faking. Right. Because when I was in grad school, it was one of these things where I was like, oh, I want to do uh, layout design. Mm -hmm. 
And so to do that in magazines or books or whatever else, I'm, I got to go to New York. Well, I didn't really want to go to New York. Yeah. Like I love visiting New York, but I didn't feel jazzed about just like, let's go to New York. Yeah. Find a really small place, do yeah. this job. I mean, it works for some people really well. I mean, I love New York. Oh, definitely. But, yeah, but, it, 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 but there is that pressure. Like I got to go there. Mm-hmm. And so you're just like, that's one of those truisms that isn't, you know, it's changing a lot, which also frees New York to flourish in a different way. Cause now it's not bogged down with people that really don't want to, you know, the idea, yeah, yeah. the idea would be that then there, you know, the more space there is, the less people feel like that, that don't want to be there, but, but go there cause they think they have to. And yeah. I think that that creates a lot of misery. Um, especially for those that are there or from there that feel a very different way about it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And it, I, you know, just all of this was kind of pointing toward, um, it's like, Oh, well that's just something I have to do. You know, oh, that's something I have to think about. This is something I have to like show to people. Sure. Right. So, um, like I, I've joked, um, you know, pretty much since grad school about the, uh, you know, there are certain times where you just kind of have to put on your designer uniform. Yeah. Which is a certain thing that fulfills an expectation of a person that you may be going to meet with or hang out with or whatever else. Mine's a powder blue singlet with a zipper on the front and orange stripes down the sides and a See, small cape. With how often you wear that, I didn't, I didn't realize that's what the use was for that's, that. That's what it is. Okay. I didn't know. I, yeah, I wear it. I mean, Man, you gotta yeah. you gotta let me in on these I'm things sorry. Uh, beforehand. Yeah. I'll put just a label. The, the context clues didn't didn't, didn't work. help me. Gosh, yeah. that sucks. So okay, I'll think about it. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> um, so then, like, I think you know, um, at some point, um, I realized that there were things to me that were important that f- that I felt had no connection. Right. Where everything it felt like I was almost operating. At times, like, okay, this is, like, the work I care about. These are the people I care about. These are the activities I care about. Um, and there wasn't a lot of interaction between them. There wasn't a lot of uh, kind of bleeding over. So it was like, okay, I've hung out with these people. Now I can go talk to these people about the things that I do and care about. Mm-hmm. Because these people are for fun, and these people are for mental stimulation. Yeah, and what happens if they meet? I know, right? Terrifying. And so it's like, you've got your friends, and then you've got, like, your... You're like work friends, right? Yep. It's the same sort of kind of thing. Like, um, that you hear people talking about like the people they work with in their office and the people they hang out with. Yep. And then those two worlds are just strange. And there's something super sad about that. And not like, not sad as in like, that's a pathetic person that thinks that, but sad in the sense of like, like you're still the constant in both those situations. Yeah. So there should be something that actually ties that together. Right. And it, yeah, it, and also it just assumes that because we're, you know, like I've, I've historically, you know, I've been so self-focused at times in my life where, um, then I'm making poor assumptions about the people I supposedly care about. And yeah. so I'm not even charitably assuming they could, I'm not even, I'm trying to control it. So I'm not even, this is going to get into, into where, where I would want to go with this a little bit, which is, is a kind of like a garden metaphor, I guess, in the whole ecosystem discussion we've talked about, like, or just the implications of we've talked about out and about, about a creative ecosystem, what that could yeah. look like. But, you know, you, you gotta also let things, you gotta let some things happen that are not under your control, including your friends and including the, like, um, when your identity is resting on it, if these two collide, it, it feels like death to a stasis that you feel really good about but it also could mean life bringing because these two people both care about you or whatever and even though one person is an artist like i have friends that are not artists and then i have friends that are artists and um there's great ways of throwing barbecues and having people meet and we don't have to talk about art all the time or also though sometimes we do and it 
and there's ways of re- making it relevant and or pointing to its relevance, if you will. Yeah. So that I don't even have to make it relevant. It's that it's that it is. It's just that we haven't seen it yet. Um, and uh, in all of these things, time is is a part of that equation. You know, um, how much time can we give to it? But um, I think I think you're hitting on one of the bigger issues is uh, there's us and then those that we surround ourselves with and that compartmentalization spills out into the folks that we, you know, have relationships with, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so you were in school and you said the first two years were kind of a bust in a way. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean, I would kind of say that um, during master's work, the thing I was learning was not what I thought I was going to school for. I think the thing I was learning was um, that I maybe didn't have a good handle on who I was in a lot of ways. Um, but I definitely didn't have any good concept of what it looked like to actually work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and some, you know, it's completely fair. You're in master's work. Some of that is going to be a development of a work ethic mm-hmm. because, you know, an undergraduate degree is time consuming, right. but it doesn't always have to have a strong work ethic. Mm-hmm. And some of that is like, you know, you're, you're taking five classes a semester and your, your time is very disparate in how you're doing things. But once you get a master's work, they're just like, okay, um, you're going to read a whole bunch. You're going to write a whole bunch. You're going to do a whole bunch. Um, and you can't do that in like two hour segments, a couple nights a week. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it becomes something that is much more environmental. Mm-hmm. So it bleeds into everything. Um, which I think was kind of my first, uh, probably the best lesson I learned in master's work was that, and then moving into doctoral work, that was something that was easier to understand, but it just went like a couple clicks deeper. Right. right? Where it was like, Oh, even more so. I remember the first, uh, I got my reading list for one of my courses, the first semester of doctoral work. Right. And I went and I bought the books on Amazon. They mm-hmm. came to my apartment and I stuck them on the couch. And it was the same number of books that I think I had read over the course of an entire year in all of my courses in master's work. Right. And that was one semester, one class. Yeah. And it was like 16 books. And it wasn't like, oh, half a chapter here. It was like some of the weeks would be something I'd say, okay, read uh, pages one to 485 in such and such, do a three-page response, ready for a discussion when you come in on Tuesday. And so that was one of those things where it's like, wow, this is, like gargantuan yeah. in so many ways. And so um, the things I learned in master's work in terms of like work ethic, I had to apply in my doctoral program. But then what it showed me is like, I, the boundaries were breaking. I couldn't compartmentalize things. And so I think this is where conversations with my wife, um, we'd be in the car and some commercial would come on the radio and I would say something about it. And she was like, don't PhD me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of like a jab out of love because it was, it was like saying, Hey, you know, this is a commercial and it's great that you can talk about it in this way. Um, I but, could hear Callie saying, but that. don't. <laughs> and some of it was just like, you know, I'm, I'm not enjoying this conversation at this right. moment. Right, right. So it was, uh, one of those things where like, I started to experience things bleeding through the edges as much as I compartmentalized, yeah, I they were bleeding into yep. other places. Yeah. Um, and the thing about that is uh, it felt like a relief. Mm. 
because I wasn't, I wasn't like keeping school at school and work at work and home at home. Yeah. Um, but all these things started to actually have some sort of like integrated meeting, meaning right, to each right. other. So things became more rich. My work became better mm-hmm. in some ways because I started being able to, I was letting myself think about things from school or work at home in a different way within the context of that space and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, which was really fantastic. And it, and it's one of those things that even just hearing myself say it now, I'm just like, man, it took how long for me to start doing this? Mm-hmm. But the draw of just compartmentalizing and separating is so strong. Right. Um, well, there's a couple of things. One, I, I think would be, so before we go in, 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 I think uh, just for a second, you know, work ethic is something that I, I have to, you know, anybody who's any students that have, that are listening that have been my students know this, um, that we work ethic does not guarantee you success right. in the identity perceived cultural capital. Like you can work hard your whole life and never become a famous artist. Oh, definitely. So however, though, work ethic will set up sort of a rhythm of conditions that can enable you to grow and advance your creativity in many ways. Um, and is the kind of assumption you have to make in terms of uh, fostering, uh, I think, a creative practice. So in one of the biggest things that I see across the board is there's an assumption about artists um, in, in a broad sense. And I see this from the culture and I see this from artists themselves. And I've, I've held this view, you know, when I, I think this is partly where I was at is that artists have a kind of uh, implicit freedom that enables them to 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 be lazy mm-hmm. in a way that is not uh, understood as lazy, but it's understood as part and parcel to being creative. And I want to say this carefully because I don't want to you know take anybody off that that has a way in their practice. I think there's a ton of ways. By the just just as a caveat, I think there's a ton of ways of doing it, and there will be new ways of doing it that I can't see. So I'm not saying that, but just looking at averages, you know, I got over 20 plus years, you know, 25 years of doing this. And um, it's a trend in myself and others and uh, friends. And so, um, you know, you, you, the ones that I've found that have the greater likelihood of being successful and are typically have, okay, they typically have a good, a good work ethic. Yeah the ones that sometimes get famous quickly that don't have a good work ethic, but have great instincts and great vision, they make some things, it burns bright and then they're done. Yeah. So they don't make it, they don't have like an enduring career or they have to crash and then determine to develop an enduring career. That's not predicated on uh, that kind of success being guaranteed. So I think what I see is a lot of folks want to hedge their bets. And so they sit around trying to hedge their bets towards ensuring this kind of um, uh, uh, famous success, if you will, like whatever that is. And, and then, then, then they have to determine, well, how do I make the work that gets me that? So now the work is compromised and there's not a curiosity for what's going to happen in the studio. There's mm-hmm. no interest in that. And there's no muscle memory to keep moving when you don't feel like it. Because a lot of times feelings are fickle and change. Like I always ask my students, like, or in, you know, if your feelings were a banker, would you trust them with your money? 
And everybody says no. That's a great yeah, question. But it, yeah. So, but if I say, hey, hey, um, how should we perceive things? They say, well, with your feelings. Mm. Okay. So then you're comfortable saying that because Disney said so, you know, like kids are sort of indoctrinated with that. But um, when you put it in the terms of value, all of a sudden everyone's like, yeah, my feelings are not trustworthy. Okay. So then why would you let your feelings determine what you make and how often you make and how much you train to make? Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Oh, definitely. Um, and so then all these people are, are stalled out. The motivations are off and they're bummed, which has nothing to do with their capability. It has nothing to do with their gifting or their cultivating of gifts. It's, it's, a, dis, it's a problematic prioritization that uh, renders them incapable in many respects. And that man, that's why so many people stop making art. And here's the other thing. We're talking about the artist, but we're also talking about the culture that's looking in. And there's, there's the difficult hill of dealing with a multitude of people that don't get it. You know, how many times in my life have I been heard? Well, I just don't get it. And yeah. it's like, well, there's a real discussion. I don't know that you're supposed to get it, but like how many things have you ever looked at that you just got? You know yeah, what I mean? Like in, how many exhaust, how many experiences where you just got it because you looked at it? So much so that you never had to look there again, never had to think about it again. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I, uh, you know, uh, growing up um, with not a lot of money, anytime something happened to the car, my dad was out in the driveway fixing it. Right. And so from a young age, um, I was out there, you know, hand him the wrench, hand him the mallet, whatever else. And so uh, learning how to do things. So yep. probably by age 10, I knew how to like change brakes. Um, I knew what that stuff looked like. I knew what it looked like to do certain things. So what, uh, what came out of that is like now I can kind of look at a lot of things going on with cars and like understand like, Oh, it might be this, this or this. Like, I don't, I don't know for certain, but then I have friends who are very much like, um, Hey, this is going off my car. I don't get what's happening. And I'm like, okay, great. But you're asking a question towards like clarity. So I feel like we do stuff like that with some with something very complex, like the machinery of a car, an automobile, right? Because there's still a desire to understand on some level. And so the questions are productive questions. That's right. But I think what you're hinting at is not a productive question or comment. It's right. very much a dismissal. <clears throat> and Correct. we embody that a lot yeah. in some ways. Um, That's the, well, you know, I mean, I think the, there's the, um, this gets into weird stuff, but, and I don't want to get too like esoteric or off, but it gets into which we're going to get to. I mean, I think, I think we've talked about like really going into specifics, like our goals for this year is, is uh, we have a lot of our episodes. I mean, our episodes are kind of lined up. So, um, but season two, we're going to dip in and take, take stock of what has happened this season. So, I mean, there's a lot of, I think more concise, you know, um, parts of conversations that are going to be laid out in a way that I think can, can really address a lot of issues. And, mm -hmm. and I think in a way it's, that can hopefully be very meaningful. And so I think right now we're, we're kind of plotting big, big terrain, which is worth continuing to, re to remember that, that these are conversation starters. We get feedback, we hear from colleagues and friends. And so, but you know, so one of the issues is, and I, and I know that there's going to be a day where we go in on this, um, is, uh, your, your worldview assumptions, in the arts, uh, have, you know, the cheap way of, I think I may have said in the past, but you know, Plato puts everything in the sky and Aristotle puts it in the ground. 
you know, Aristotle says, it, but it's already there. You know, the Michelangelo thing, the, the, the body was there. I just had to release it from the, um, you know, from the marble. Yeah. And Plato's like, there's perfect forms in the sky. And so everything we do falls short of that perfection, but the forms inform the form you're making and that's the grounds. And so those are, those have been helpful historic categories, but they're problematic too, because there, there has to become a mystical, uh, Mickey to cover up a lot of the, the, the concreteness that's needed to really take that with a grain, grain of co- or with a, an air of confidence. So what I'm saying is, um, most people aren't reading Aristotelian stuff. They're not reading Plato and, um, they're not reading Heidegger who tries to synthesize Plato and Aristotle in some ways. Yeah. So, you know, um, there's just starting with real practical assumptions and the, the, here's the thing that what trickles down into the average person is the mysticism. So they're walking around without a grounds for art in a mystical category and therefore they don't get it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You, you, you know, like that's the thing. So it's like in there, what's implied in that assumption is that they ought to, because art has been, characterize is so lofty and inaccessible. It must be a mystical divine <laughs> kind of like transmission of meaning. And here I am just this random average person and I don't get it. Yeah. Meaning it, it ain't doing what, uh, I'm understanding it's supposed to do. And so th- you see the problem, you know? Yeah. And so then, and then, and then artists, uh, we're guilty of adopting this same assumption because we're, we're, Oftentimes, you know, like until you get a good art professor, art history professor, a good thinking professor, or you read some books and, you know, or, you know, and of course there are people that are just great thinkers and readers that put this together. But in proportion, the average going folk person, it doesn't put this together. And so they just yeah. hold the same assumptions. And so they double down on being alone in their studio, trying to mystically conjure a work that's going to both satisfy them create a economy or create a, create a system in their life that allows them to eat, pay the bills. Right. And, and also is going to translate into value and meaning or significance for an audience of strangers while also being something no one's seen before. Man, that's a lot of stuff you got to do. That's a lot to do, right? That's the idea. Crippling. Yeah. The idea that you're going to do something someone's never seen before, but they're going to recognize it and and extrapolate meaning from that, that is personal to them and, you know, transformational. Um, All of that's clouded in a mystical Mickey. I mean, it's a pre-reflective state of being that renders anxiety and forces you into um, stagnation a lot of times. You know, yeah, I, I can definitely see that. I mean, because um, I think that there, you, you were mentioning something earlier than what you're talking about now, kind of making me put two ideas together. You were talking about laziness, and then this, and it feels like laziness is like a natural, like corrective response to this sort Correct. of anxiety. Yeah, you know, it's like if I can't do this, then I guess the only thing I have to do is just nothing. You know, and and that. Like it, within that that rational space, it makes sense. Like that would be the outcome of that, because anybody that looks at it very soberly would say, "Yeah, I can't do all these things. I just can't." Um, and I think, I mean, I was definitely there. There was a point where I was like, you know, hanging up the cleats, so to speak, with the business. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to look for clients. I'm not this, that, and the other. 
And some of it was because I wasn't achieving those things you're talking about. Right. right. There wasn't some like transcendence to the work I was doing. Mm-hmm. Right. So either the clients weren't sexy enough mm-hmm. or the outcomes of the client relationships weren't sexy enough. And I wasn't getting cultural capital in this space in the way I thought I should. And so all these things together, it's like, I guess I just, I guess I just failed at that one mm-hmm. because everything had to move toward this like mystic kind of quality. Now I was not thinking that no, as not, I was going through Yeah. This. I don't think you're thinking it. You're feeling it. Oh yeah. yeah. That's why I said that pre-conscious category is a helpful one. It's, it's, uh, it's even beneath the subconscious. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, so this also sets up the other category, which is divine inspiration or inspiration that is divinely bestowed which going back to uh, Plato, he said, you got to throw out because that means that we can't really test for um, the intent of the inspiration. Yeah. So, you know, I say divine kind of tongue in cheek a little bit, but, but the idea that then I'm going to distract myself, uh, you know, so for me it was through eating. Like, I mean, and I'm, and I'm just being honest, like I, um, I sought comfort in the short term mm-hmm. and created a rhythm or a habit of waiting for inspiration under the context of which I just described and therefore in the short term, perpetually seeking comfort, comfort yeah. for me was eating food. So like, I remember like I've said this before, but it's just a truth. It's just the facts. Like I was in grad school, excited about learning in a good way, you know, mm-hmm. and I was rock climbing, <clears throat> trying to be healthy, physically fit, like 180 pounds and, uh, had a great studio, the fridge. We had a lot of good food on campus and then I would just, wouldn't cook food because I was too lazy to do that. Wasn't responsible enough. Didn't plan ahead. Mm-hmm. Was living heavily in the moment. So I'd just come and spend money that I didn't need to spend on food. And I'd store a bunch of food. And I remember just eating a Whopper. And um, it was kind of embarrassing. But and just kind of going, you know what? I'm going to, um, instead of integrating my life and seeing myself as a psychosomatic unity fully integrated in this reality, I'm going to uh, quit rock climbing. Because what's the worst that can happen? And I'm just going to set my conscience free to eat what I want because I need this um, to tackle and to be situated well for this inspiration to come as an artist. And so, I mean, I gained a ton of weight. I mean, in, in no time at all. And, and there was an asymmetry to my life that I couldn't even see. I mean, I was out of balance so badly. Yeah. And I, I didn't even have a, I'm like, I'm like, to your point about compartmentalization, like, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, well, this is not affecting the work, but I got to a point where I had to sit down and make paintings. You know, I gained like, I went from 180 to 230 in a short amount of time. It's a lot of yeah. weight. Yeah. And I've been struggling ever since. So the consequences have stayed with me. And there's an, a physical level of activity that was enabling my work to be good. And by not rock climbing anymore, it went away. Yeah. But I was compartmentalizing. So I didn't, I just thought of it as a studio problem. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like I didn't have a, a grounds for it. So that would just make me more anxious and it make me more um, like, maybe I got to grow my hair long. <laughs> yeah. So weird, well, so weird start, responses. You, you start, start thinking like, I changed my image. Grasping for straws, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, gosh, that's real. You know, I think in between that, right? Like uh, you can look back and you can kind of like um, in a wise way, be like, oh, that was a laziness on my part. But I think there's a there's a designation, there's a difference that we have to kind of align, we need to draw. Um, because I think uh, some people might be listening and they say, well, you know, I, I do things that don't have to do with my studio practice. Like, does that make me lazy? 
And that I don't think that's at all what we're saying. There is a definite way where we can trick ourselves into thinking we're doing something for the sake of something else when really what we're doing is we're abdicating responsibility. Mm. So I think there's a term that's always been really helpful for me that, um, again, comes out uh, in class with my students, and that's a term of uh, productive counterproductivity. Mm-hmm. And so um, what it is is things that you're doing that are not your maybe creative work, but they actually enable that creative work to live well. Um, and so we might think about it this way. I always use the, the analogy in class of um, exercise. All right, so you go to the gym and you spend like an hour and a half one day and you're working your arms. The next day, do you go back and spend an hour and a half working your arms? Or do you do something else? Maybe it's legs or back or something like mm-hmm. that. Maybe you do some your cardio. Glutes, your glutes. Yeah, I work my glutes out. <laughs> Six days of glute work. Yep. Um, I'm gluten free. <laughs> maybe, maybe you uh, like, you know, go for a swim or just take a day off, right? Well, not doing your arms again the next day is actually super productive because it allows that to actually strengthen. That's a great point. Yeah. And so what I tell students a lot is I'm like, because they say things like, I'm just not, I'm just not in my studio enough. I'm just not making enough work. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, you're totally right. I can see that. And it's evident in what you turn in. Mm -hmm. But other times they say that and I'm like, no, 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 no. Imagine if you had a 20 pound barbell and you were just lifting it over and over again, just doing curls. And you were like, yeah, the way to a really great arm is to do a lot of these. And I'm like, you're, you're right. Now let's say you do that for like eight hours and you don't stop. If you could possibly do that, what's the effect of that? It's muscle like collapse. It's muscle like complete defeat. It's, of lady, what it it's is. lady in the water with M night Shyamalan where that dude's sitting at the stairwell yes. of the apartment complex with one buff arm. It totally is. <laughs> Except we don't get the buff arm. We actually yep. get like destroyed muscles. Get noodle, noodle arm. And so what, so if you take that and you say, well, how do you apply this to creative practice? Well, your brain, the place where you're spending all this time, where you internalizing so many things where you're working through this, you're reading, you're synthesizing, you're making, you're doing your brain is a muscle in the same way. So if all we do is only in this kind of myopic way, like I'm going to be, you know, Jackson Pollock in the dumpy apartment, just making paintings 40 hours of a day sort of feeling being a misogynist. Yeah. Cause he was, <laughs> so I'm going to do that. And that's going to make me fantastic. He's like, no, at some point, your brain will kind of break. And he did. I mean, he, he was miserable. Yeah. A lot of those people were miserable. They were singularly focused and they made great things, but at what cost? Right. And they're only a subsection of the people that exhibited that type of behavior. Plenty of people who did the same sort of things didn't have the success and it just became a burnout or a destruction. And that's very real, right? I mean, we met lots of folks where you run into them like eight years later and I'm like, oh, what are you doing? And they're like, well, I'm doing this thing. And I'm like, oh, well, what happened? I just burn out. Mm-hmm. I had to do something else. It was just killing me. And then part of me is like, hey, congratulations. Good job for like recognizing that and understanding that like arts aren't this ultimate thing that you should destroy your life for. Right. But, um, you know, so I think there is a difference between like, Laziness pushes away from kind of the responsibility and the actual hard questions and the reality of the difficulty of the work we do. Mm-hmm. But this idea of productive counterproductivity can actually move us to a place where we understand that the other things we do actually can influence and impact our work in real ways. Yeah, that's money. You just gave like, you know, someone should pay you for that. It's money. Well, I'll just, I just know. ate a sandwich. 
while Gareth said that because I was so motivated, man. I was like, no, I didn't eat breakfast and I started feeling woozy. So if you heard any sandwich sounds, it's just I had to eat really fast. I'm sorry. Um, I was just dropping some truth while you ate the sandwich. So it was all good. Yeah, well, the sandwich is good. But Gareth, that's actually, that really is gold. Like what you're saying is, um, God, it's like got to sit on that. Like um, you got to, you, any of us that are wrestling with these questions, like, how you know, because our the question is always, how do you balance this? Well, our, I think our whole thing is like, man, we got to go back and diagnose this. What's the problem? Definitely. Right? Definitely. Um, so that the medicine tastes good or you want it at least. Yeah. You can't know you need medicine until you know what the problem is. Yeah, I mean, for real, like you have the, you know, you ever have like those times like, okay, grad school, totally can't afford to go to the doctor and things like that. Mm-hmm. So you're like, okay, I feel like crap. So I'm going to go to like Walgreens. Yep. And I'm going to pick up like some heavy Benadryl and yep. some ibuprofen. And I'm going to take all this stuff and just hope it works. Close my eyes. There, there's huge anxiety there, right? That's right. Because you're like, I don't really know what's wrong. That's right. But I'm going to throw a lot of stuff at it. That might Maybe one of them will work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you wake up. And you, you wake up feeling like a turd muffin. Yeah, you totally do. Total garbage. Like uh, you're a zombie for the next two days. Like sure. it's destroyed actually any hope of you doing something. Yeah. So now you're, yeah, you're, I mean, it's, it's really true. I mean, like that's a silly illustration, but it actually makes sense. Like, I mean, that's a lot of folks after school. Yeah. They're just kind of like throwing opportunities at themselves, hoping something sti- sticks, makes them feel better and it doesn't work. And then you, then you're like, I'm just maybe not cut out to do this because everything has, I can't stress this enough. There is an assumption somewhere in us that thinks everything has to happen by some kind of um, mysterious anointing or rev- revelation of some kind. Like yeah. somehow I'm going to know that I know that I know. Well, I mean, even just yeah. think about like, even like the the vocabulary that's structured within the concept of creative genius, yeah. right? It's so uh, problematic. Lightning bolt moments, epiphanies. Yep things from the blue right it's right. it's it's like an, a total a total embodiment of like the isaac newton apple yes. falling on his head stuff, that's exactly right? right like like even if that were something that happened that the apple falling on his head suddenly gave him scientific knowledge in that moment you know that it wasn't something that was done like building upon a larger conversation yes. he was having it punctuated where, something that was exactly. already happening and that's yeah. the difference when there's no there's no punctuation there's when, when there's nothing happening there's no punctuation per se because you may be inspired but because you haven't been working you don't have the ability to maximize the inspiration so i mean Definitely. A, i mean a lot of people that got songs in their head but they can't play them because they won't learn to play guitar man so uh, I, I feel like you're talking about me right now i might be but <laughs> i might be talking about myself too but so what i'm saying is there is a deprivation we there is uh there's all the great art that could have been made, but because the people didn't understand this, they never will make it. We'll never know. Man, that oh gosh, that's that's uncomfortable to sit with. Yeah, it has real implications. There's and, what could and have it, been made, and it should be uncomfortable, I think, because uh, you know it's uh, you know we miss the mark, and uh, honestly, like, and just think about it this way: I miss the mark. So, I mean, just so people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just so. Yeah, I mean, this I mean, is totally not a pushing yeah, off on other folks. This is yeah, straight this is, on us. Yeah, yeah. This is where we're. I mean, if anything, I hope you're just. We're trying to figure it out, too. So, <clears throat> just try to be honest. Yeah, because, <laughs> like, it, yeah. And I mean, you know, I can, I can talk about, like, all the things uh, in grad school, um, but none of that uh, should be heard as. And then when I graduated, I had it together. Because then you got that divine inspiration. <laughs> then I know, you right? Have, you somehow the apple. That, that, that diploma somehow solidified something, yep. which is not the case, right? But That we, only we happens in Wizard that. of Oz when he gets the, he, when he gets the uh, brain, but he just gets a diploma. 
Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> the Scarecrow, he has no brain. And he's like, well, here's a diploma. And all of a sudden, he's like, you know, he starts doing um, stuff I can't do. Yeah, yeah. Like math and things. Yeah, we just have to get the right diploma, right? I mean, that's that's kind of like another one of those lies. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, if I just get this degree or this thing. Um, I had somebody, um, I don't think they said this out of kindness at one point uh, to me, but they said uh, something along the lines of, well, you know, you don't have to go to school to be an artist. Right. And it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get I, I understand. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> that makes but that, total sense. And that's, and that's the scary prospect because that's true. But then what you're saying, see, the, the deeper the deeper thing is like, but I, I need the approval. Yeah. I want someone to tell me. Here's You want people to tell you that your effort is worth it. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's really hard just to be like, I love when people are like, I'm self-made and I'm just feeling and doing me. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> The yeah. fact that you guys say that says it ain't that powerful of a statement in some ways. Right. You know, not powerful enough to solve it, to make it never a need again. Mm-hmm. So you're going to need other people. Otherwise, you wouldn't be saying it to other people. You know what I mean? It's the ultimate buffer. It's the ultimate like, um, you can't you can't say otherwise because I'm feeling me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's real. You know, so I could be like, I ain't feeling you. Uh, you know, like, yeah. or, or whatever, but it's like, it's, it still shows that we, in a great way, um, we do need each other, you know, like, so it's not to say that those aren't, those aren't true, but it does get into like parsing out a lot of these strange categories that I think, um, we got to We got to reflect on and be okay with, um, I mean, cause this is something that you and I've experienced. Like we've had to make changes. So when people ask, how did you do it? It's like, well, a lot of changes have had, to, have had to happen. Oh, definitely. A lot of staring down the brute facts of my dereliction. And, and um, gosh, there's nothing worse. Dude, gloves off. There's just nothing worse than than fakeness, man. Yeah, that's true. You know, just masquerading as, as I'm awesome. I'm an awesome artist. And, you know, uh, let me make you feel crappy because right now I'm doing better than you. <laughs> you know, in fact... In order to feel really good about being an artist, I just got this Guggenheim. I got to make sure that you feel like Deuce. So I'm not going to talk to you for a while. Yeah. You know, make sure that, you know, I've, I've climbed up the social ladder. You know, I'm showing at uh, this particular gallery in New York and, and you're not. And I can't talk to you anymore because I received some divine inspiration and now I'm, I'm special. And um, But that specialness is contingent upon making sure that you feel like crap. You know, I've experienced that. I mean, oh, yeah. a yeah, lot. Totally. A lot. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. It's tragic and it shows that there is a frailness underlying all of this, that things can be so contingent upon these factors, almost uh, guts the real value that we assume is there. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I totally. Yeah, it's, it's frustrating um, because like you've experienced that in folks and we all have at different sure. levels. Like I experienced this as a student with other students yep. who were just like, I am so much better at this. And it's like, that's great. You know, yeah. I'm really happy for you in some ways. Um, don't understand what all the shade is that's going on, but um, it's weird. We don't like it when we see it in other folks, but then uh, we kind of slowly and silently try to move ourselves toward the same thing. Right. Um, but well, cause yeah, you're trying to, you, it's a migration towards the same problem and you're like, well, I got to get ahead of that. Yeah. And if I can just get ahead of it, then I can course correct for everybody else. But you, you, it's like politics or something, man. The higher you go up, the more you become like the thing you probably hate. Mm-hmm. I don't think every politician is corrupt when they start. 
Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I think you you, you uh, compromise one too many times along the way, and you 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 lose sight of where you're at and what you're about. And um, you're already sitting on flimsy ground. You know, you're already on the hunt for something to be bestowed upon you that you don't work at. It's coming back full circle, like work ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that again, this is generalizations, but not that everybody falls into this. But wherever it sticks, it sticks. You know, and where it doesn't, awesome. You know, there's. It's too big of a conversation to cover every possible angle on it, but this is a common thread that is just undeniable. And I've lived on both sides of the country of the United States. I have friends that live outside the United States. I've, it, it, it's not unique, you know, um, and even in high level institutions like our own, uh, you find folks struggling with the same stuff, you know? Yeah. I think, um, you know, going back to something you said just a minute ago, like we, like you said, uh, like we need each other. Like Correct. I think, you know, we, there's very few people I think that would push this so hard or push against this so hard rather, but you know, like we do flourish in community, right? I mean, like if we, if you have an issue with that, then just ask some questions of like, why do we have cities? Why do we have universities? Like all these things are contingent upon people together totally. doing things. Um, and so we, we, we flourish there, but then we find ourselves kind of retreating in mm-hmm. solitary spaces. You know, it's almost like we, we understand the idea of flourishing com- in community, especially as artists and designers in terms of influence and impact and things like that. Mm-hmm. But then we even compartmentalize ourselves in our practice, you know, so we're even working against some of the things that I think most people wouldn't fight against, um, which is just, it's just difficult because I think also it's, it, it it's something that, I don't think many of us just wander into knowingly, you know, we don't set out and say, okay, got my MFA. Next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to have a solitary studio practice where I have little to no conversation with anybody else that does the work I do. Um, I'm going to alienate a lot of people in relationships. Um, I'm going to uh, work a dead end job because I feel like that is what actually supports me and what I do. And all of these things will have no connection to each other. Mm-hmm. Nobody walks into that. No. But no, how many times yeah. have we been that person? Yeah, absolutely. And how many times have we met those people? Yeah. And they have the same questions. Yep. And it really is coming back to this whole topic. Like, how, did, how do you do this? Yeah. And then how do you do more? Mm-hmm. Which I think is usually at the, the base of the conversation with students is they're like, I get the idea of doing work. Mm-hmm. I get the idea of what this looks like. But how do I do more? Right. And I, so goodness, that is, so perceived responsibility. Yeah. That is, is, is possible responsibility is different than real responsibility. Telling me you're going to telling, um, that I know that there's a backpack that is full of 35 pounds worth of stuff is different than putting on a 35 pound weighted backpack. True. So different. Oftentimes in that initial picture of waiting, anxiously distracting yourself in the meantime, um, lack of, of, of desire to just work at things, being curious, cultivating, honing your skills, exploring a steady state. The lack of that is the other where you sit and you, you imagine the weight of certain responsibilities. So you say, I could never have kids. Yeah, but you never held one. Mm. You don't know any. Yeah. Uh, I could never have a spouse or a committed relationship or, you know, these are all things that I struggle with. So, um, 
I couldn't work that job. It's too much responsibility. It's too much weight. Well, have you ever felt that way? No, but I don't, I, you know, and, and so, um, but how do I, how do I do this work? And the question is pressurized. Like, um, I need it all to happen instantaneously. Oh, I need gosh, it to be yes. bestowed on me and I, and I need to do it in a way that is divorced from feeling any kind of responsibility in your, almost like in your physiological state, like in your muscles, in your, um, and, and so if you dare to step out and care about more than your studio practice, it's amazing how your studio practice can come alive. Definitely. You know, so for me, when I, um, started to get a window, it was out of necessity. I, I was working in an art store full time, grad doing grad teaching assistantships in Sacramento and, uh, making work. And, um, during school, I'd be at the art store, but I'd be annoyed. I'd be curating shows, this gallery next door. And, but you know, like I was inconvenienced mm-hmm. <laughs> while I was being paid. I was like, Oh gosh, got to go to work. It'd be so much better if I, yeah. you know, in, I was, a, it became miserable in a great environment. And, um, and so then I graduated and, uh, was in a committed relationship, but, but Laura was in Los Angeles. So we had a phone conversation. So it was very conducive to, the times that we weren't doing the work we were doing, you know, like she was studying sociology and some other stuff. And, um, so the relationship didn't have a lot of weight on it in terms of like proximity. And we talked about, well, maybe we should get married. You know, we've been together for a while and, um, that's a whole discussion, but, um, I went against the grain in my own experiences and, you know, we decided we were going to do that. So that immediately changed my priorities. I had to find a place for us to live because she's going to be moving back from Los Angeles to Sacramento. And so I was there. I had to be, you know, I had to find a, get some things in order. And, um, and then I got a job working at a school, um, Elk Grove Elementary with this great uh, lady named um, Jerry Kesky. She's like a PhD in education, early, early childhood development. She had secured a Warhol grant and she wanted, um, someone in fine art, someone in music and someone in dance or, or performance. And she's like, I don't want a trained educator. I want someone who's been living the experience of being that. And we want to develop curriculum. So I stepped forward and said, I think I could do this job. And, uh, it was exactly what I needed coming out of grad school. That was pretty bitter and heady and you can't be bitter and heady with kids. (laughs) No. And, so I started going to started working two jobs. Um, and we prepared for this wedding and got married. So now I'm responsible for kids K through sixth grade developing curriculum. And, uh, you know, like kids are running across the campus to give me hugs and they're like sliding me little drawings they've made cause they're, they're being inspired. And yeah. it's like my uh, hard heart was being warmed. Um, and I felt a care for them that was outside of me and I couldn't let it go. So I was like, I, I, I'd see the value of this. And, uh, and then I had to take a second job, a third job. So I had to work at a, got a job fortunately at a place called courtyard elementary in Sacramento, which was a private school. Um, kind of like a secular private school. Like a lot of times private schools are like religious institutions, but this was not super interesting. I had, I've yeah. never seen anything quite like it. My point is, 
um, you get married. Now you're responsible for another person and, and vice versa, of course. Mm-hmm. And you have these people that you're teaching K through eighth grade in one school two days a week and K through uh, the other days a week and some late hours at an art store weekends and no time for studio. So um, it, it gave me a, uh, it demanded integration. Mm. It, 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 it was happening whether I thought about it or not. It was a, it was, it had to happen and the bills had to get paid and I had to clean my room, you know, which is a struggle. I'm a little messier than, than Laura. And, um, you know, I'm not even making fun. I'm just being honest. Like those are things that, you know, we've been together 18 years and, uh, yeah, there's things that I'm still growing at cause I have natural propensities and the question is, do I love her or I might do I love myself more? And I want to continue to strive to love her and my kids and my neighbors more than I love myself because ultimately I think that's where the most joy is found. But, um, yeah, I, I think it wasn't until I put the 35 pound backpack on and then put more weight on it that I started to understand what opportunities were there. Yeah. Cause now I wasn't dealing with hypotheticals. You know what I mean? It wasn't just me sitting in a room imagining what it could be like. I had to determine to step towards a direction. And I think that's the biggest thing is you've got to step towards Russ taking responsibility. And what you'll find is you're more capable than you thought. Uh-huh. And it focuses the kinds of questions you ask. So someone who's taking responsibility is going to start asking very keen questions in terms of how do I do X or Y? Yeah. Somebody who's just sitting in a room and hasn't sta- taken any responsibility yet. It's all hypothetical. There's no weight on them. Therefore, there's no weight behind their question and your answers don't really satisfy because there's nothing to satisfy because they're anxious. It's like I always say, it's like a runner who's been, who uh, is meant to run and gets to the starting line. They haven't been training, but they've got this energy. So they're pacing, getting ready to run and uh, the gun goes off and they just stand there. You mentioned anxiety and dissatisfaction a runner would feel if the race starts and they don't run. Yeah. But there's yeah. no one telling them not to run. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's it's like a false start for artists, you know, for creative people. No, definitely. I mean, we, when we get into conversations of failure, um, I always ask the cliche question of like, how do you ensure failure? And it's just that it's, you just don't start like that's always going to give you failure. And, um, you know, there is something, I don't know, maybe it's just a weird sort of, uh, you know, like, like a sleeping gla- sleeping gas kind of dream where it's like, well, you know, I don't have to put myself out there to fail. I can just not start. Um, and somehow what we you, feel better about that. What do that. you think that is, man? What do you think the, the um, what's at stake there? What's the, because you're having to make a choice. Something is at stake there. I've been asking that question. I think some of it is that we have some like really jacked up ideas that have become culturally integrated that have to do with uh, like, the thing that paints the picture of us like failure is like that spot. You can't get out of a a shirt, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like a stain. Mm -hmm. And so if we have any hint of it, it like makes everything else like, you just can't deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, cause I think when we start to break down, like when we look at things like failure stuff, that just doesn't work. Like it's the majority of what we do. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether we're talking about professional practice and art and design or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like whatever it is we do, most of what we have is failure, but we've also created such a, I don't know, America is such like a, an economically driven 
society, not just in economics, but the mindset of economics in so in many everything. other things. Yeah, that's a great point. So we take this idea of capitalism and we really rail against it hard in art school, right? And we're like, ah, oh, you know, I don't want to be a part of the system. And it's like, but you're doing the same transactional things in other parts of your life. Yeah, just not with, with dollars. And but so with we people. say failure equals bankruptcy. Right. And that's insurmountable. And it's not. It's uh we have to look at it in I think a much healthier way where we say, you know, failure is a really strong word for just not getting it right the first time. Yeah. And also, uh, not to chase this down, but whenever we we are like, I didn't get it right. You guys start asking questions like, what kind of world are we in such that you should get it right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's an, uh, uh, a prior assumption, uh, an oughtness that leaves us protecting ourselves from failure because we actually have an intuitive sense that there is a rightness to things. Yeah. And so, and then you have some folks that kind of re- you know, rebel against this. And so what they do is they take failure and they make it attractive. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. So they appropriate images that I think conjure. I certainly did this, you know, like I took a lot of what I was ashamed of and highlighted it in my own expressions, the way I dressed. And I thought if I do this, it buffers any critique. You can't critique me because I'm, I'm rocking it and I'm making other people want to rock it with me. Yeah. And, um, and, and so it creates a, a societal, you know, tide change at the level of fashion. And I don't mean fashion in a shallow sense. What I mean is, 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 uh, the way we're, we're robed or clothed, if you will, the way we image ourselves, present ourselves, but it doesn't touch necessarily that, which is prior to that on the, in the, in the internal self, the, 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 the core of who you are, if you will. And that's a huge, huge, huge discussion. Yeah, definitely. So I don't, you know, I'm not pretending that we can just gloss over it. And, and, um, but, uh, but I do, I do know that changing my outside didn't necessarily change my inside. And that, that was, uh, really concerning for me, you know? I mean, so like even into the marriage and that kind of thing and starting to have some success as an artist after school and like, dude, it, it made it worse. Like, cause I was like, oh crap, like, why do I feel exactly the same as mm-hmm. I did before all this stuff, before the degrees, you know, before the marriage, before, you know, why, why isn't this getting deep down into my soul in such a way that I feel satisfied, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I'm having moments of joy. I mean, not to be so dramatic and make it sound like whatever, but you know, like, uh, you can have a good time, but the effects wear off. I mean, that's what happens with alcohol. You know, people start drinking and you're like, I need that buzz again, which means I got to, and then, and then the buzz doesn't come as easy. You know, yeah. you start to build tolerance to it. So why do we, why do we build tolerances to buzzes? And, um, you know, someone once asked me, um, how can you hunger for a meal you've never had? Mm-hmm. In other words, like if you want lasting satisfaction, but you've never had it, how is it that you want that? That's worth that's, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I mean, that's yeah. like really worth sitting on. Like I'd sit on that. I was like, if I'm being honest, I need to think about that a lot. I mean, it is a, you know, it is, it's funny. Um, Hearing you talk about that, like, I don't, I've never had a conversation with a student where we have unpacked that prior question, you know, because they'll say things like, you know, I want to be like really successful in this. And I've never asked like, how do you know that you want to be that? Mm -hmm. You know, I've never asked that question, but it's fair because I think that, uh, we critique ourselves based on whatever assumptions we have in that question. Mm-hmm. Like whatever the assumptions are that give the answer. Mm-hmm. So we critique ourselves and say, oh, you're not doing this thing. You're not doing that. But we haven't asked those questions. And I, you know, I, I think about, 
you know, kind of going back to the idea of like the non-start and like what that, what that does. Um, I, you know, I feel like if we take everything out of like the context of art and design, I can make the same situation for students and they are like, oh, that sounds ridiculous. And it's mm -hmm. like, okay, so what about art and design? So we, we push like the, you know, the sports or the, uh, um, like exercise metaphor, because some of that in, it involves such a, a, a necessary daily practice mm -hmm. and an integration of your life into what you do right. that it feels like the best comparison point. Yep. So if you go further with that and you say, Hey, you, uh, you know, you, you, as a kid, you ran around a lot and people were like, Hey, you're, you're like quick, you run. That's awesome. And at some point you get in your head, I should be like a long distance marathon runner. Mm -hmm. And people are like, that's fantastic. That's great. And so what do you do? You, you do the things you, maybe you are part of like a cross country team in high school and you run races and you're, you're pretty good at a 5k to 10k. That's great. Well, you go to college on a scholarship, you do your running and you're doing like maybe some track stuff where you're doing 1600 meters or whatever else. Well, then you go and you're doing a professional thing. You're like, I want to run a marathon. Well, maybe you haven't run that distance before. And so what do you do? You just tell yourself, no, I'm not going to do it. Or do you say there's actually steps that get me there? Mm -hmm. And some of that is just by doing this, the first parts well, mm -hmm. like, okay, do a 10 K great. Do a half marathon. Great. Nobody that ever has become a world-class marathon runner has just woken up one day and been like, I've never run before, but I can probably just do that fine today. Yeah. That only happens in Forrest Gump. Yeah. For real. Right. And that's a fiction. Yeah. Didn't happen. No. And so if we you look at it and you say, so why would you think that like doing art and design would be right. any less difficult? Right. And that know? gets to this tension between what we want to do and what we need to believe about ourselves. Uh -huh. And we, we want to do something that we, we, we say, I want to do something that makes me happy, but I need to believe that I'm super important. Yeah. And both of those become exaggerated, the scale up, right? Uh -huh. Okay. They scale up, but they scale up in a context that appears to be moving faster and faster. Yeah. Which means you have less and less time to make that. So, which means it capitulates sitting in the room, hoping for, a kind of uh, divine intervention of sorts, like a kind of um, holy other encounter with inspiration that renders you transformed in a immediately recognizable way for, for other people such that they confirm it such that you produce things that, um, that, that transact in significance and value and meaning. And, and now utopia, personal utopia follows like a cornucopia from that it just spills out. Yeah. And, and if you look at statistically anxieties off the charts in America, you got to ask yourself why mm -hmm. you can't go like, well, this is not, this doesn't really matter. Okay. But 80% of 80% of Americans right now say they're seriously anxious and, and, uh, in places where you wouldn't normally see that, like you get into, because the internet is, is availing itself to so many, um, to everywhere. Right. And so we, we can give this, false sense of expediency that just increases. And, uh, and it's like, once you kind of step off the, the deal, so it's kind of like, well, everybody else is playing virtual reality. The one who wins is the one who doesn't play it. Yeah. The one who wins is the one either making it or actually driving a car in the real world mm -hmm. that we can't escape, you know? Um, 
And so, uh, and, and it requires like, I don't know. I watched a couple birds this morning walking along my studio. I'd never seen him before. And then Laura was like, yeah, it's amazing. Like I get up early in the morning and I'm out, out in the back and I see things all the time that I've never seen before. And we just live in a neighborhood, you know? And, uh, and she, she meant it and it's true. Um, and starting to, starting to kind of have the, uh, awakening of, of like, I want more of that and less memes and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want this to just become like a doo doo fest on the internet, but we really do need to think about the way we're being shaped by it mm-hmm. and how it's facilitating this kind of urgent expediency. Um, and you know, hardwired into us is a time frame that says we're going to expire already, right? So nothing, nothing more motivating than than reminding you of that in unnatural time frames that are only going faster and faster and faster. Yeah, you know, no, that's true. And so then you start to have, okay, so here's the thing. Yeah. You spend most of your time in a virtual world, but you're going to try to make for a world outside the virtual world. And so you see people kind of veering towards the virtual. Well, I'll just live there. Right. But you, we got to go back and ask some hard questions. Like, is that, is that really what, is that going to bring you satisfaction? Like somebody was like legitimate and I have colleagues that I think, you know, are excited about this. So my two cents is I had someone say they were really excited about the idea of living on the internet, like living on a computer, like being removed from this body. And I said like, what if that, okay. If your body has all this sensitivity to it, senses things and the senses play a role in knowing they're not divorced from each other. What if there is no senses when you get on the, uh, you know, when you're living online as some kind of like trap consciousness, what if that's actually hell? Cause now you're stuck on there. You can't turn the power off. And you have no feelings. Yeah. And your thoughts never produce sensations. I mean, that sounds pretty hellish to me. That sounds like hell to me, man. Yeah. And so there's a lot of people though that are like, I'm, uh, I'm so bummed about where I'm at that I, I, this is just the better alternative because, and it's like this weird Mickey of like, well, we'll just live forever. And so we start to build creatively towards that proposition. And so, um, while living in this tension saying we should be caring for this, this world, this, um, earth, you know, mm-hmm. the global, global stuff that's going on, the weather changes, like, and it's like, um, we got to make a choice. Yeah. Um, we can't be mad about the failings of this world, but then eagerly want to escape into the other because there's no import in that. If there was, we'd be solving these problems. And I know that I'm going to have critics saying things like, well, no, 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 I've played video games for years and now I'm working in, in intelligence dealing with like, you know, spy planes or something weird. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know some things are happening, but, um, in general, in total, in proportion, uh, um, there's a lot of folks that feel ill-equipped to just deal with like basic, basic reality, but they want to be artists that are going to have impact on basic reality. No, I think, I think there's something that you're saying, um, about like these ideas of like exception becoming the rule. Um, that's kind of interesting, uh, especially because, I feel like that actually is stuff that my students do a lot is mm-hmm. they take specifics and they kind of uh, blow them up to where that's the context. Yeah. So I've talked to people who, you know, a couple of years out of school and uh, I'm like, Hey, what are you, what are you up to now? And they're like, Oh, I'm just working this job, you know? And I'm like, Oh, cool. What, uh, you know, what have you been doing with the art and design, art or design stuff? And I'm like, um, not a lot actually. Um, so you get into questions like, well, you know, what's up? Do you just 
find it wasn't for you. It wasn't what you wanted to pursue actually. Like what's, what is it? And they're like, no, I just, I couldn't do the stuff I wanted to do. And so you unpack it more with them and you find out like, oh, well, um, for me to be successful, I had to do like this guy or this, this lady did, um, over here. And so I had this idea for like a, you know, a big, like 250 page graphic novel. I didn't really know how to start it. So I just did something else. And you know, it's, uh, it's like you're, you're trying to define what your successful career looks like based upon work somebody else did. And while it's great to aspire toward that, like there are steps, I, I doubt they were dropping fat graphic novels, like for the first project, mm -hmm. you know, like there's some kind of shame in like doing a daily web, web comic. Yeah. Like there's shame in like doing like uh small books or zines. Right. There's a, uh, you know, shame in developing like a three part arced comic book. Right. You know, like there, there's not. Yeah. But we've taken exceptions and we've allowed them to kind of be elevated as the rule to a rule. Yeah. We deify it. Yeah, we, we definitely elevate. do. It's amplified. It's amplified humanity. We do it with celebrities. We do it with mm -hmm. our heroes. It's like Greek statues. So they were amplified expressions of human longing. And we do that with, um, we do that with artists and designers and our heroes. They become so big that we're doomed to never, uh, obtain to what we've placed on them. That is not yeah. even true of them. Oh, true. I mean, there, there are, um, I mean, I've had students that have said things like, you know, or, um, people I know who are like, yeah, you know, I'd really like to be a painter, but you know, I just, I'm never going to be Van Gogh. <laughs> I kind of want to look at him and be like, good. Read his biography. Right. <laughs> like, I don't think you want to be Van Gogh, but also like, yeah, he's the only Van Gogh. Like, why don't you be the thing you are? You know, because there's, there's a unique set of circumstances and experiences and ideas that are fantastic that pushes back towards what you were saying, Ryan, yeah. about like, think about all the art that hasn't been made because right. we've like stuck it down this weird pipe and been myopic about the right. way that art and design works and what people should be like that are doing it. Um, we've compartmentalized even art and design so much. Yeah. We compartmentalize difficult. and romanticize. So then you, 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 uh, compartmentalize and then it frees you to be, to romanticize. Like, so then you, you take, take the kind of cliche romanticizing of Van Gogh and it's like Van Gogh wasn't even Van Gogh. And we all know that that's the, that's the whole irony is that you never sold a painting while he's alive or maybe yeah, one yeah. or whatever it was. And, and then the travesty of like, I don't even know if Van Gogh would be excited about his paintings being on the side of coffee mugs and kitsch stuff, you know? Yeah, for and real. so it's like in, when someone in our time did live to obtain to a kitsch popularity, Thomas Kincaid, we hated it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so, um, I think, I think this gets at like, we need grounded, enduring examples. So like for me, one of the things that Laura and I have done a lot is, um, you know, we've, uh, opened our home to, to, to folks. So, um, cause that's what people did for me. You know, yeah. like I had people that let me into their studios, let me drive to work with them to hang out, let me come to their house for dinner. And I could see like, you know, I could see like dishes in the sink and bills that need to be paid. And, and I could see that they were doing it. And I could ask them real concrete questions. And, and, um, and, uh, it gave me a new, a fresh earthly down to earth vision for what could be the case. And so then, um, you know, with Laura and I, we had to, we've had to work and continue to have to work to be on the same page. So it's an integrated vision, you know, like my kids even are a part of the vision in the sense that, um, 
it's looking out to the culture it's facing. It's the the difference between um, there's take take a couple and you have two people facing back to back, or facing forward together, or yeah. facing each other. You got you got to do a lot of uh, it's it's not a lot of facing each other, but it's a lot of holding hands facing out, and then the leading the kids into that too. So the hugs are along the way towards looking out. The kisses are along the way towards looking out. The lessons are pointing towards the larger picture. And, and that starts to set up, um, a vision that enables, uh, priorities to take place. Uh And that means that things become scaled to the priority as they relate to the other parts. And painters do this all the time. They, they compose. It's all integrated. If it's supposed to works well. And, uh, they can create illusions of, of certain things being bigger than they are. Yeah. But the facts are they integrated them well and they balanced it or they, the dynamic e- equilibrium, like this little thing was so powerful in its own density that it punctuates this larger shape that is semi-transparent and, and occupies less weight in the painted field that it's painted in. Like there's real import from those kinds of thoughts uh, into real life. And so time you know, plus a little chance and maybe a little bit of luck um, and diligence and space can create opportunities, but you got to till the soil. So like for me, um, inviting people in my home is like inviting them into the center of the garden, if you will, where, where we're cultivating. Yeah. And you think about gardens, there's a couple of things that I've been kicking around with gardens and, and I just love garden metaphors, but, and I'm not even a good gardener, but um, is the stuff's always potentially there to grow but the soil needs to be cared for. The air needs to be good. The light, the sun, the water. Right. But also in gardens, there's what is cultivated to the point that you cultivated. And there's just what's beyond that, which is like a wall that is not cultivated, that is unkept and potentially looking to break in to your garden weeds. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's a dynamic state of care. And an increase to the garden. There's also a generosity in the garden because there's certain things that grow like tomatoes. You know, I can never eat enough tomatoes in the way that they grow. I'm going to have to give them away. Yeah. Right. And so, um, when we look at our family life, we're trying to invite people in and, and so they can see it's organic, it's integrated and we don't over prioritize certain things, even if the culture tells me I need to. So that, that means for me is like, uh, some folks look down on me because I don't support their vision of an artist in the same exact way. And that just means I get to be belittled, which I have for like over 12 years now for certain people, other people that have come into the space and are not outside that garden wall, if you will, um, change their minds. And they're like, Oh, this guy's cool person. You know, like, um, actually I'm seeing some benefit to the way you're doing things. Like a lot of people want families but they've never seen a vision of what it can look like and be a relevant yeah. creator designer, if you will. And so then they see it and they're like, then they get a desire for it. Then the questions become, how do I do it in a meaningful way? Cause they're actually seeing it happen. And then that talks about like, then you can get into studio discipline. Well, let's talk about it. Like here's how much time I'm really able to dedicate to the studio. Here's how much time we dedicate, like, you know, like take us, we had to plan out every recording session for this year for this podcast. Yeah. So it's not in our brains. It's on a piece of paper outside of us. And we, it's on our calendars and our families know it. Our friends know it. 
and anyone that's going to be on the show knows it, Lord willing, you know? So like it, 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 uh, it's good for everybody. And it, it, it means that that's prioritized to the port proportion that it needs to be. Yeah. Which then leaves us with all the rest of the rest of the free time that we have. And, uh, you know, I give, we have rhythms. Like for me, studio time is, uh, prioritized towards July and August. Uh, and then in the summer, and then there might be some little touches throughout the fall and the spring. So that's the proportion of work that I'm able to commit to my studio, which is not as much as someone who may be putting all their time in their studio. Um, but you know, uh, I don't see these things at odds. It's not a balancing act for me. It's an integration. It's, it's a, it comes out of a prior assumption about the way the world functions, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I think the, the idea of integration is much more, um, helpful. It's more attainable. I find myself feeling more, uh, I don't know, you might say, you know, fulfilled or something like that in the work. Um, because as with teaching, with doing this stuff with a gallery, with, um, my client work, like to get them to all balance is such a weird, precarious and even impossible task. Right. So integrating these things together actually works really fantastically because it means some things can be prioritized at different times. So, um, for example, um, the work at VCU like requires a certain number of hours and some of those are completely inflexible. You can't just not have class. You can't do things like that. But then at the same time, um, other things can kind of wane a bit. Right. So my client load has diminished over the last year. But what I found is that I'm actually doing probably some of my, my best work in terms of the criteria that I have set up for myself in terms of, um, can I do work well in less time? Mm -hmm. And that's something as a designer. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a designer that, that pushes heavy towards like some efficiency, especially within client work. Mm -hmm. You want to be efficient for the client, but also, um, there's no need to recreate the wheel every time. So um, that can be a different priority level, mm -hmm. but it's still integrated because um, just like you're talking about, we, we know when we're going to record the podcast. We know when we're going to edit it. We know when it's going to go out. I also know what nights or days I can do my client work. And it's not because I've just arbitrarily said, this is when this is going to happen but because I understand it as one point in a larger network of who I am, the responsibility I have, the work I want to do, the things I aspire to, all of those become points. So I can't consider my client work outside of my family life, my time at VCU, the stuff with a gallery. And likewise, I can't understand my work at VCU outside of family, gallery, client work. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make sense. I can't compartmentalize that stuff to such an extent where one just becomes the thing or well, everything else starts to fall apart or suffer or right. something like that. Right. And I think what you're getting at too is like, so like when my value is not attached to the title I hold, that means that I'm good with you knowing that I'm a painter, a father, a, you know, a neighbor, a brother, a friend, you know, a doofus, sometimes a goofball, like, uh, somebody who gets it wrong sometimes, um, somebody who, you know, like, um, that fully integrated self is brought to bear in every situation. So I will say this, anybody that knows me that really knows me realizes I'm kind of the same person everywhere Yeah, because I'm not compartmentalizing. So I'm not fronting 
what you see is what you get for me. Mm-hmm. Now I might be a little like etiquette may kick in. So yeah, yeah. a circumstance may require me to be a little more poised in a certain kind of way, articulate myself a little more diligently or clearly for the good of the situation. But in general, um, you, you don't, you kind of get the same person everywhere. Um, I have my moods, I have my, my ups and downs, you know, if I'm working on it in one situation, it's because I need to work on it everywhere. You know what I mean? Like, um, the problems, the difficulties that I have, like areas where I'm, I'm not, not so strong and taking responsibility tend to bleed in every situation. Yeah. I mean, it's not a shock that I, uh, can be impatient with my wife or children and also clients. Right. You know, and it's not, um, it's not a surprise if I were to say, I'm taking shortcuts with my client relationships. I'm also taking shortcuts with my friend relationships, mm-hmm. right? Like all of that makes sense because it's, you're the same person doing the stuff. Yeah. And I think that's, I think we, I think if you can have that and you're free to kind of, kind of have some people speak into, you know, like, where are you really at? Like, yeah, we were talking yesterday. Um, you know, our friend mentioned something about CarMax and a, and a friend who got a job there and how it was harder to do an interview and get a job there than to go to Princeton or Harvard. I was hearing from that person, Aaron last night, and he was saying that, um, they do the 360, um, uh, review where three people that work closely with you answer questions that are asked of you. And that's how they deal Mm. with your annual report. You don't even get to talk about yourself. Wow. It's based on three different perspectives on you. Well, that was fascinating because our eyes look out and our ears go in and, and we tend to see each other in some ways more clearly than we can see ourselves, yeah. which flies in the face of popular, our popular assumptions. I was going to say, like, I wonder, wonder how terrifying that sounds to most people. Yeah. Scary to me. I mean, like I hear it. I'm just like, oh my gosh, I have three people like more or less say close to the same thing about me. I've got to be that consistent. Yeah. That consistency, consistency doesn't come from compartmentalization. Nope. It just can't because compartmentalization still pushes towards the idea that if you have three people and you're compartmentalizing something, they're going to see it in three different ways. Yep. But if you have an integrated life where, where your practice, um, and your, your social life, your work life, your artistic design life, whatever, if that's all integrated, like it's, it seems to be something that's easier to be consistent across people, time, things yeah. like that, or at least move toward that. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't mean that there's not difficulty because certainly have difficulty. Like we have challenges like Laura and I have to work at making sure that everybody's cared for Quality becomes a real thing. And as you know, like, you know, we're working on that and, um, it means that too, like there's certain things that I know how to do that I do at a fraction of the ability that I'm capable of doing and it may never go back. So like I've had to set forward a vision, which, I think we'll kick at some point and we'll talk about like this kind of like getting a vision um, for life that feels grounded and attainable, but having a vision and, and surrounding yourself with people that have a vision, you know, like not just um, you, you need to have people that are looking that are noticing, but um, real life um, is far more satisfying than merely dreaming. Yeah. You know, just by comparison. And I don't think that's, that's the whole picture, but just a part of it. So like that coming back to that taking responsibility, you know, um, it does something to you. Um, it helps you understand what you're capable of 
and it weight anchors you in such a way that, that you can, um, you actually can do more. So like I get more done now than I did when I was in grad school. Yeah. And I'm married, I'm married with three kids. I work a full-time job. I do this. Like, like it's really, it's really a strange phenomenon. So it's like, but I've learned to prioritize and I've learned to also see that not everything is equally valuable to the same degree. And here's the, there's a logical fallacy. If I say not all things are equally valuable, what is not implied in that is all things are not valuable. Right. That's the way it's heard. No, some things are more valuable than others. I have to be able to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. That's super important because that allows me to both have a place for me and my kids and my wife, but also from for friends and neighbors to sleep over. Like um, that is essential. So when I go to work, I'm not bummed about work. I may have a hard day, but I'm not bummed about work because work is not divorced from my studio practice. Yeah, They're not like, I wish I was getting paid full time to be an artist. Well, maybe that'll happen for you. But there's a lot of folks that it just doesn't happen, but that doesn't mean that you can't do art and it be valuable and you be a valuable contributor. Yeah. And so, um, the work I do relates to being able to do this art space. Like if there, if I didn't have a job, Shaka art space doesn't get going, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in 2011. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and I've, I always said that I saw Shaka art space as an extension of my studio practice. Mm-hmm. So then when people are like, well, how many paintings you're making? Well, I'm making some paintings and I'm doing this space that allows a lot of other people to show their paintings. And that, that seems really exciting to me. And that activates composition and curation and thinking and writing. Those are all things that I don't want to let go of. Mm-hmm. And so if that makes me less of a painter, so be it. Um, if that makes me less serious in your mind, that's, you know, put it a jerky way. your kind of your problem. Yeah. I mean, um, it's still, it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about how, um, our ideas of like capitalism and Western economics like have really bled into so much because there's the conflation of um, volume of output mm-hmm. and uh, legitimacy, right? Which is yeah. is an industrial mindset. It totally is. Totally is. Um, and that, that can totally really piss some people off hearing it that way. And I'm kind of okay with that. Yeah. Um, because it's the reality of the situation. Right. Um, you know, like... Um, I don't know. Are you less of a painter because you make like five fantastic paintings in your life? Or are you more of a painter because you've made 5,000 paintings? You know, right. and it's, and we would obviously answer that and say, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. It's like, but it is. It's yeah. what you're saying. And so I think, you know, there, there's been a lot of stuff we've talked about today and it's gone a lot of different directions, but really kind of coming home. Um, I think a lot of this is based out of, uh, there's a huge anxiety and conversation once we get into what it looks like to actually do this stuff in practice. Um, and that's kind of what we've unpacked today. So consider today kind of like a shotgun at a target where a lot of things have been kind of splattered. Um, and this is going to be picked up in other episodes and kind of trying to make sense of it. And we're not saying that there's like a specific answer that we're necessarily moving towards because we're both still figuring this stuff out right. in so many ways and how it works with our lives. Um, but that's why we want to bring other voices in. That's why we always ask you for your questions, for your comments, for your feedback. And we are very grateful for those of you who have definitely done that. Um, completely grateful for it. But we want to have these conversations be vibrant and lively, but also let them exist as they actually do in reality and not just be some kind of like we're in a room recording a podcast and we're having thought experiments. We don't want this to be that at all. Yeah, because for us, these are conversations we're just having. I mean, part of the premise of this podcast was that we were already having these conversations. Yeah. And a lot of people were excited for years to be around them. And so we just wanted to bring this to a wider audience and invite more folks in to do kind of 
you know, do what we've been talking about, even in this podcast, stay, take a step forward, take more responsibility and, and give more, you know, from the garden, so to speak, and invite more gardeners in to continue to cultivate. So we don't think that we have the answers that, you know, I, I think it's always tempting to kind of come off that way. But, you know, most of any critique that I've, I've said, or I think you've said Gareth, probably, I mean, I mean, I'm just thinking about myself. Yeah. I was about to say, I, mean, I am, I am the yeah. object of that critique. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Like, so, all those situations. Yeah. Those are all, uh, ongoing temptations. Like, you know, maybe the last, last thing is like, you never just to kind of land the garden metaphor is, uh, there really is never a time that you're not going to need to mow the lawn and prune things and, and cut things back. Yeah. It man. just doesn't exist. I'm literally in that space now. If I don't cut my grass, I'm going to get yeah, away from the I city. I did it. I did it. I, yeah. I, I was going to call the city on you. So. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. So well, Somebody needs to. My yard yeah. looks like garbage. Yeah, this is the so. city, and I just want to talk to you about your yard. Um, I was but, going past a stranger's house. Yeah. Don't even know them, by the way. Grass was taller than the house. But the, the thing is, the uh, yeah, like that stuff is life is, you know, human existence is 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 this kind of vital state of things just ongoing. So you, you got to cultivate it. You, 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 it. Certain things are not eradic. You don't eradicate them. You keep, you know, yeah, definitely you vaccines. People stop taking their vaccines. All of a sudden diseases are back. It's like, I thought that was gone. No, we had cultivated stuff to keep it from, from taking hold. Yeah. And as soon as you stop cultivating that and st- it's cultivation and stewardship, we, sh- we need to talk about that. You cultivate and steward towards the ends of human flourishing towards the ends of supporting life and not just supporting life at a bare minimum but imbuing it with with value and interest and story and dance and music and food and wine and beauty and like love and all of these things we all are writing songs about like so uh what does medicine have to do with that well everything Uh because if that doesn't if doesn't (laughs) if that's not held back we all die from some crazy thing yeah, and, and so we, you know, it's a manifold picture that it requires all of us. And we just, we got to get that. Yeah. You can't ask those questions in an isolated bubble. You got to start looking outside of yourself so you can see your neighbor's good work, you know, and that your studio practice is not important than your neighbor's, you know, uh, law, law practice or, um, right. you know, or working at the grocery store, mm-hmm. the aesthetic of, of welcoming people, like the value of that in the grocery store is huge. Yeah, so, I mean, it looks like we got a pretty good trajectory here. I mean, yeah. We're talking about integration. We're looking at vision, cultivation, stewardship, yeah. community. Um, all these things that, uh, <laughs> small words, big ideas, yep. and we, tricky things. Yep, in our next episode, uh, tune in. We will have uh, Ashlyn Browning, who's got a show. We have a show up at Shaco Art Space right now called Fantastic. Curious Things. It's opening up um, July 1st Friday, so mm-hmm. that's coming up real quick here. Uh so first Friday, July in a panel discussion the day after. So it's July 5th, 6th to 9th is the opening. And then July 6th, which is a Saturday from 2 to 3.30, it'll be a, an ex, um, a three-person panel discussion about painting. And they're really three incredible painters at different points in their trajectory. So it's uh, Natalie Schmitting, Sam, uh, Sam Bantley, now Sam Taylor, and uh, recently married in um, Ashlyn Browning. And so really uh excited about this It'll be our first panel discussion mm-hmm. uh at Chaco art space of good. this kind and so um if you're listening to this be on the lookout for that and uh check the dates check the website check our instagram page you know we're still fundraising so if you're you're feeling moved um we would we're thankful for the support and we we need ongoing Definitely. support and we want to keep doing this so 
uh, yeah, check us out for all of those things. And we, we thank you for your listener support. Yeah. Thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. See ya. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.